Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. Uh, Paul is in Athens. Um, the, the whole sermon, this whole address is a really interesting one. We are uh, admittedly going to pluck a couple of verses out um, as we are um, studying, going through a series on the values at BGC, the, the five values. We've gone through the cross, uh, the family. Uh, we took a break and did a little bit of an uh, introduction to the church as part of a little bit of a membership process that we're working out. Um, and so today we're talking about Boise that we've committed ourselves to. Uh, and so we are... Um, kind of like the, the family, we are not necessarily going to camp out in one spot and sort of exegete that one passage. We're going to sort of survey um, a lot of scripture, but we will return to this one a few times. And it does say some really, really important things um, as regards to place and, and proximity and, and boundaries and things like that. So um, Acts 17, verse 26 Paul says, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So the value that we're studying is the value uh, Boise. It would have been easy to say the city or our community, but uh, we want to call it what it is. Our, our church is in Boise, and so Boise is a value of ours. Ultimately, this value is about, and, and what we're going to sort of unpack, is a commitment to and a belief in real uh, proximity and real presence. It's about actually having a strong understanding or maybe even renewing a theology of space and, and place. Um, it's, so it's in our name and it's in our core value. A few things that we've said um, in, in, in some of that language is we believe in real proximity and presence. And like Jesus, he's our example. Like Jesus, we are eager to know and identify with the people to whom we have been sent. Because we are, we are a sent people, which really only makes sense. It really only makes sense if you believe uh, what we've been told in other parts of scripture, that in Christ we are citizens of another place. We actually belong to another home. So here... Where we are now, we are sojourners. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are missionaries in this place that God's called us to. So back earlier in Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus could have said, You will be my witnesses everywhere. Right? Effectively, that's what he said, but he didn't say it that way. Instead, he put before them the, the radiating influence of their presence in the world. And it would start for them in Jerusalem, and it would grow from there to the regions around them, and ultimately then to the ends of the earth. And so the easy question to ask would be, where is our Jerusalem? Where is our Jerusalem? And it seems simple. It seems actually quite practical. I promise I will try to make it as complicated as I can, uh, but hopefully in a, an inspiringly biblical way. Um, to answer that question, individually, we should understand our Jerusalem is our own circle of personal relationships. Uh, we should understand that God has placed you, has placed us near to some people, not all people, but some people, to neighbors, to coworkers, to business associates, friends. God has placed you in their life to be near to them as, as sort of your Jerusalem. That's what I would say. Corporately, as a church, as a body, as one family, uh, we would say that our Jerusalem is Boise, because BGC is 
in Boise. And so Boise is where we've been sent. I know, I understand that several of you live in places that aren't Boise. And as hopefully we'll see, this is a principle that you participate in, that you affirm and you participate in as, as a member of Boise Gospel. Uh, where your church meets in Boise, you participate in that presence in Boise. And then because that principle governs us as, as, a, as a body, as a family, it, it trickles down and it impacts and it applies to you as individual members as well. And so it's a principle that you are compelled to take with you. And, and it, it should form you and, and, and make it so that when you return to your communities and you return to your streets and your workplaces, you understand that just like our body has been sent uh, to this city, your body, your family has been sent to those places as well to live out the gospel there. So we are committed to the city of Boise. This is where we are and the place where God has planted us. And, and the principle is that we believe God has placed us in particular uh, neighborhoods to labor for the reconciliation of those neighbors. Now we're going to do ultimately a walkthrough of several passages of scripture so that you can see sort of the importance of, of place and proximity in God's word. But first, let me just describe to you at least one moment where this idea of, of space um, really set in for me. Uh, the, first, the first house that Jesse and I bought um, was in Temecula, California. It's 1,350 square feet. Um, it was three bedrooms, two and a half baths. Um, all the bedrooms were upstairs. The footprint of the house was actually pretty small. We joked that I could, I could um, go to the, back, the garage door and I could, when I'd lock up at night, I could lock up and then I could take three big steps to the back door and I could lock the back door and I could take three more big steps to the front door and I could lock the front door. That's about how much space that bottom level was. It was, it was okay, it was kind of spread out, but I, and I've got big strides, but it wasn't a very big house. But we loved it. Uh, we loved it a lot. And the, the moment that this idea of place really set in um, is when we moved. And um, I'm a sap, I'm a sentimental guy, so I'm easily moved by this kind of stuff, but um, we had got everything out. We kind of, at this point, we knew we were gonna be moving up to um, Portland at some point. Hadn't happened yet. We ended up living in um, Rico and Julie's apartment behind the house for about six months or so, uh, but we knew we were kind of on our way out, um, and we had rid the house of all of our stuff. We had stripped every room of everything that was us and ours, and so I was, I, I just can't not touch up the paint and like make sure everything looks good. So I was just going around doing that and just getting the last few things out, and I just realized that all, all the stuff, all of our things had been removed, uh, but the only thing you couldn't take out is you couldn't, the memories were all still there. And so I, I walked around the house just torturing myself uh, in every room and picturing all the things that had happened in those places and all the things that we did. And I, I, I was, I mean, I was, so, I was sobbing, like walking around full stride, just sobbing at every corner. And it was, uh, it was hard. It was hard because what I realized is that I don't think that those memories would be that memorable or even, or even that I would be able to remember them or they would be defined in any way or have any sort of place in my, in my mind or my memory if it wasn't for those walls, those sort of flat white painted walls, which is a terrible idea when you have young kids coming to paint a wall flat colors because it smudges like terrible. So we had smudges. That's why it took so long to touch up all the paint. We had fingerprints everywhere. But it, if it wasn't for those walls, if it wasn't for the red cabinet door at the top of the stairs or the, or the, like the musty gray carpet that we wanted to replace the whole time and just never did, or the, the creak in the stairs outside their door or the, that small footprint of a house and, and all the memories that we made, they were, they were all still there in that house. And every time I think about them, like boys as, as really little kids and stuff, I think about 
all of those places. I just don't think that those memories would be there if it wasn't for the spaces that they happened in. Because every memory, right, every experience with people, because that's what we're after, right? We want to be with God. We want to love God and we want to love others. We want to experience Jesus, encounter Jesus, and we want to experience and encounter each other in Jesus' presence. That's what we're after. And every experience with Christ or with anybody else, it requires a scene. It requires a setting or a stage somewhere that contains that interaction. Relationships, they happen in real places. And those places, in fact, actually become then part of the story. Because maybe for you it was... It was in that church pew that you repented of your sin for the first time, or it was in that dorm room that you surrendered to Jesus, or it was in that Boise State Student Union building cafeteria that I met the girl in sweaty gym clothes that would eventually be my wife, or it was that Kaiser Hospital room where Bear was born and I first became a dad and got to celebrate Father's Day. Because where we are, where we are matters. The places that we're in matter. And I'm not saying that God couldn't have introduced Jesse to me in a different room, um, or that certain places are necessary for God to work, but it is in real places that God put us and where he interacts with us and where he brings us together to know and interact with and encounter each other. We are not naturalists or materialists, those who would claim that the man is nothing more than just a physical body with chemicals and tissue and bones and firing neurons and things like that. We reject that notion. We reject this naturalist view of man because we know that man is far more than just a physical body but we should be careful not to reject too much. While we might be a body and a soul, or a body and a soul and a spirit, we are a body. Your physical body is a gift from God that one day he's going to redeem and he's going to glorify and he's going to draw up into heaven into his presence. So this means that while our souls have soul needs and our spirit has spiritual needs, our bodies have physical needs real physical needs, and particularly when it comes to our instinct for relationships, something that we've been exploring the last couple of weeks. We talked about the family, that we're, we were made, we were created for relationship. And so we have these instincts for intimacy and community. It means that we cannot fully satisfy those longings with non-physical, virtual, or long-distance relationships. At best, Zoom church was helpful for, what, two weeks, max, after that, it was literally the worst thing ever. In fact, I wonder if it actually might have made things worse overall. Because virtual conversations are just cheap imitations of a kind of real-life relationships that we forge together across a table, around a meal, or over coffee, or on an actual walk in an actual park. If the goal is to be with God, to be with each other with God, or to be in the world with each other, with God, to help those who are far from God find their way back to God, then places and real proximity, they matter. They matter to God, and so they must matter to us. And once we commit to seeing and knowing places and being truly present, we will recognize that places are places in part because they have walls and they have boundaries and they have oftentimes names and they are distinct from the next place, which is its own place. Those boundaries can be geographic, like the woods or the foothills, or they can be geopolitical, like Boise or Ada County or Coventry or something like that. They can be cultural, like the North End or the Mall or the Basque Quarter downtown, or they can be familial. They can be the Perry's house, right? Or the Balbus's house. 
I will say, that, again, this is one of the primary weaknesses and maybe even active deceptions of the internet and social media. Because though these places are understood to be um, places where, like, quote, conversations take place or even communities are built, the internet has no boundaries. There's no way to define the internet culture. There's no landscape. It is, in fact, kind of the opposite of what actually makes a place a place. It's this sort of strange non-place. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying nothing good happens on the internet, but it's never reproduced the real intimacy and relationships that we were created to experience in real proximity, right, to God and to others. In fact, I'm kind of, I'll admit, with some of this virtual reality stuff, I'll, I might be the first one to like pay 10 bucks to like sit courtside at a Lakers game or something like that. But I was watching a, 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 one of the ways that they were developing these things, one of the introductions to the, the Apple thing or whatever that they're coming out with, and the, the extent to which they go to try to mimic actual connection and presence with people where they, when you're talking to somebody on FaceTime, they're trying to recreate your face in some sort of digital space so that when you're, because you're on this thing, they can't actually have a camera on you, so they sort of digitize your face so that the person on the other end can see some form of you because they know that you have to see people, right, to actually communicate with them. And we know that's like, that's one of the things about Zoom that was so hard is that, yes, I can see your face, but when you're staring like over my head, it seems like, and also I can't smell you. I can't, I can't see like the contours of your face. I don't know how deep your nose is to the back of your head, right? You can't get any of those things from a, from a camera, from something virtual. You have to actually, this is why we, this is why we're not satisfied. Like you go on, someone meets on a dating app. I don't know that's happened before. Um, someone meets on a dating, they don't say, hey, I really love this. I'd like to keep our relationship here. You know what I mean? It doesn't work. Like we know, and it's just, it's fascinating to me that in this virtual reality space, how obsessed they are with mimicking real relationships when they, they probably would do us all a good a favor and just burn the whole thing down and force people to just figure out what their neighbor's name is. You know what I mean? And actually start, start meeting people. There's no wonder then that while, um, while cities like Boise are growing rapidly, which means that more and more people are living closer and closer together, Somehow it is becoming harder and harder to actually feel connected to anybody. That's a weird phenomenon. To be closer and more tightly packed and yet more distant from actual relationships. Why does all this matter? Because, as the Apostle Paul just said, God has determined man's appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. And he did this. He exercised his sovereignty in, in bringing people to a time and to a place, a specific time and place that he oversaw. He did this ultimately so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and they may actually find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So this is a matter of God's sovereignty over both time and place, real place. And it's a matter of God's mission, his desire to be known and experienced by people. Uh, so let me just, let's run through... Um, Four things, uh, we're just going to talk about real proximity and presence in Scripture, talk about proximity and presence in Christ, proximity and presence in our mission, understanding our role in that mission, um, and then a little bit about proximity and presence in practice, a lot of p -p -p P's, sorry. Uh, but first, proximity and presence in Scripture. Genesis 2.8 says this, so if you just think about this sentence for a second. I don't know what your conception is of creation or, or Eden in the garden, um, but just listen to this sentence. It says, The Lord God, in verse 2, planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. So there's a lot of things going on here. 
One is that God in his creation, again, and we should point out too that this is prior to the fall. There's only a couple places, and we'll talk about the other one in a little bit. And there's only a couple places in scripture where a, a world without sin is described for us. And this is one of them in the first couple chapters of Genesis. So sin has not spoiled things, but in his good creation, God has created a place that is actually within a place. Most scholars agree and understand that the garden was a garden within Eden. That Eden itself was apparently a definable region. Eden doesn't mean earth. There's no, no one argues that Eden was just another word for the earth that he created. Eden was its own region and the garden was inside the region. So at the very least, actually, just in the sentence, there are immediately three distinct places. Three distinct places. The garden, Eden, that it's inside, and the rest of the earth. And actually, um, if we're getting really, really um, into the imagery here, in, within the garden, there's a tree. The tree is at the center. This will get teased out. We won't have time to explore this, but this gets teased out in, in God's design of the temple and the tabernacle, the sort of concentric circle, where as you get closer and closer to the middle, you get closer and closer to God's presence. I also think it's important to acknowledge that God has been gracious to us from the start. Okay? It's not that before the fall we didn't need grace because we were perfect and we earned it all. God has been gracious from the start. It says even in that sentence that man has been formed. Man was formed and created from the dirt outside of the garden and then placed inside the garden. What grace it is that God would form man out of dirt and put him in a garden that he didn't plant to work and enjoy and cultivate and live in the presence of God in a place that he didn't belong, that he wasn't from. That's man's lot. That's God's grace from the first page, giving man something he doesn't deserve. If we go to the next page, Genesis 3.8. We talked about this a little bit in our discussion group on Wednesday. Um, Genesis 3.8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid. So this is... This is after, if we're reading this, we know that something's wrong in wonderfully dramatic fashion. We know something is wrong. Sin has already been introduced. Adam and Eve have already encountered the serpent, listened to him, and disobeyed the Lord. So as readers, we think, okay, something is amiss here. And the author then describes for us what was available to Adam. A walk with the Lord in the garden. He's so specific to say that it's even in the cool breeze of the evening, that God actually knows the best times to go on a walk. The tragedy of it is that we know that that's available, and why wouldn't Adam want nothing more than to hear those footsteps and join him and run to him and be with him? And so the, the tragedy of this story is that that's God coming to man, forming out of dirt, giving him a garden that he didn't plant to enjoy God's presence, and he comes to him, he approaches Adam, he enters into that space that he's created for Adam to enjoy with him, and what does Adam do? He gets afraid and he runs away and he hides. Right? That's the tragedy of sin. We know our own sin. We know our own shame. And the last place we want to be is in the presence of a holy God. So fast forward to the end of that chapter. Genesis 3.23 says, So the Lord sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And I think that's a really interesting detail that he, that he introduces. It's interesting that they aren't just simply sent away. They are actually returned to where they came from. Instead of living in and cultivating and growing and working on the good garden that God had planted for them, they are sent to work the dirt that Adam was formed from. So not only does it matter where we are, it actually matters to God where we're from, to know our own story and our own origin. Okay, then chapter uh, 4, verse 16, another page forward. Adam and Eve have had kids. 
Cain has murdered his brother. And God confronts him. It says, then Cain went out from the Lord's presence. This is his punishment. And to live in the land of Nod, east of Eden. A couple things as a summary. One, God was talking to Cain. God was talking to Cain. There was, there was some kind of relationship there. And Cain had a really interesting job. Apparently they had some sort of priestly job where they were offering um, sacrifices of some kind. We haven't been told what the rules were or the outlines were for those things, but they either instinctively knew or got instructions from the Lord on, um, on how to give sacrifices uh, and to experience a relationship with him. And then it says that he's banished. And, and in his banishment, he recognizes that earlier he says, this is too much for me. I'm going to be banished. As, I'm going to become a wanderer in, in the earth. So he, if we remember the, the structure, the places that have been outlined, he understands that his place now is to wander in no man's land. I believe that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and not Eden. And that Cain was ultimately banished from Eden itself. There's a lot of reasons for that. I just think it's interesting when you start to see those concentric circles and the places that God has designed, where his presence is known, and, and the further people get from him um, as they're continuing to experience judgment for their sin, as their sin grows and as their judgment grows. Needless to say, of all those things, okay, fallen sinful man is placeless, is placeless and homeless. The parable actually of the prodigal son emphasizes this reality as well. Okay, the first son, he could have rebelled in any number of ways, but one of the ways is that he left. He took what was his father's and he left. That was the great sin. He took what he thought was his, which was actually his father's, took what was given to him by the father, and he left. Despite all of his debauchery and lavish spending, ultimately he was always homeless. After Eden, though, the rest of the Bible, uh, the biblical narrative is about God making a way for man to re-enter God's presence. That's what the whole story is about. This is what all of the law and the temple and the sacrifices are all about. It's making it possible for man to dwell near to God. His presence, God's presence, would remain in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple, in a very specific room, in a very specific place. Um, and the people then, by that rule, could live nearby, right? They could live close by. Eventually, though, the people of Israel are going to be exiled. That's such a huge theme in the Old Testament, the idea that God's people, their ultimate judgment was to be sent out, to be exiled. They're scattered from their homes because of their chronic rebellion. So God's people, all the way from, from early in the story up until Jesus arrives, and, and even after Jesus arrives, God's people are a homeless people. And God's promises in these times could have easily been, don't worry, I'll send a Messiah to conquer all of your enemies and rule forever, and none of these places will matter anyways. Right? But he doesn't say that. God's promises have always included the promise of a real place and a home, specifically a home where God would dwell with his people. He repeats that so much that it is clear that even his interactions with them in the temple are not what he means. Because he's constantly alluding to a kind of withness and, and dwelling among that they're to hope for and look forward to. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. Uh, Jesus has said, behold, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, sorry, he's talking about leaving them and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's a really interesting thing to say. Okay, and then we get to Revelation 21, 1 to 3. Okay, this is the other part of Scripture where a sinless world is described. Revelation 21, 1 to 3, and we read about a vision that John sees of heaven. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself 
will be with them and will be their God. I'm not injecting. I know I say with a lot. I'm not injecting with into this story. That's what John wrote. Over and over, the promise fulfills and comes to completion when God brings a city out of the sky that will be the place where he dwells with his people. Scripture has always anticipated a promised land for God's people, a place to be and to settle and to remain and to enjoy an eternity of rest in God's presence. All of creation is made new, right? I think we should anticipate that all the world, all of creation will be renewed and redeemed. But it says also that a new place, a new city, or maybe even a new Eden, if we're teasing this theme out, is established for God's people. It would be, be really easy, really tempting to dismiss all this as just uh, symbolism. And maybe in one sense there's some, excuse me, there's some fancy imagery being used here. Uh, but if you were to continue reading in chapter 21, one of the angels goes through the trouble of giving John a tour of the city. And John actually describes, as the angel points out, a massively high wall with gates. This is verse 12. And then it says the, the angel has a measuring stick. Right? He gets his tape measure out. And he actually measures the city's walls. And he gives us somewhat specific dimensions. Right? Which actually, if we were to calculate it out, the dimensions themselves are something like 2 million square miles, which is a little bit more than half of our country, probably. It's also a cube. So it's about half the country, but that it's also the same distance tall. This is what is described for us. Now all kinds of questions arise and I have none of the answers to any of those questions, okay? But I just, I, I wanna just camp out on that imagery. The new heaven and the new earth that is being described that we are waiting for, that Jesus is preparing for us, is or at least is something like a city with walls and gates. Why? Because ultimately, I think God cares about places with boundaries, at least in the first and the last parts of Scripture that describe a world without sin. Both places describe places with boundaries, with borders, with names, with places for people to be and to settle and to, to be with God. Let's look at then proximity and presence in Christ. John 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Again, I'm not, I'm not injecting those withs. That's what's written. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then you go down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The fundamental problem that all men face that started in the garden is that our sin exiles us from God's presence. And while we live out that exile, God sends his son. God sends his son. Jesus, though he was with God, so much so that he was God, he leaves. He leaves that place and he comes to us. And I, th I think it kind of begs the question, if we're being honest, it begs the question, why couldn't God arrange for some other divine mechanism to achieve our salvation? Why, why live among us? Why didn't Jesus just sort of arrive, stand in the middle of the temple and say, I am God, bow down to me, right? He would have been crucified pretty quickly, I think, if he did that, and he would have gotten the atonement thing over with. But why did he come and live with us? Why did he come and dwell with us? Why did he inhabit our bodies that way? I think it's because you cannot help people who are far from God find their way back to God if you are far from them. And I think that's not just true for us, which it's, it's going to be true for us. It was true for Jesus. Why? Because God cares about real proximity with his people. He desires to be actually and truly near to them. Man was far from God, so God went and got him. Right? You were far from God, so God came to you. 
What does all that mean then for our mission to Boise? Proximity and presence in our mission. I'll just highlight this key verse here. John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them, to his disciples, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You see, we are a sent people. Corporately, as a church, we have been sent to Boise. Individually, or as family units, you have been sent to your various neighborhoods and schools and workplaces. And this verse, I'd actually say, isn't actually about imitating Christ. There might be one temptation to read this as, as if we are, to, we are um, calling us to live in a way that imitates Christ. I don't think this verse is about that. There are other verses that are about that, so I'm not saying that that's not true. I just don't think that that's what this verse is particularly about. It's about the way that we are sent. The reason for our sending. It says, as the Father sent me. In the same way that the Father sent me, I am sending you. Jesus was sent into the boundaries and the brokenness of my life. So closely and so near to me that he identified with me by becoming like me. He bore my burdens and he suffered for me, ultimately by taking God's justice and wrath in my place in order to reconcile me to God. The purpose and the shape of the Christian life ought to be exactly the same. It means that our lives should look like lives that have been sent by Jesus. And as he was sent to be truly near and present to us, we are sent to be truly near to people and present with people and, and in proximity to people to meaningfully enter into the lives and brokenness of others so much that we can start to identify with them and we can start to bear their burdens and we can start to plead with God on their behalf and we can start to seek their redemption and reconciliation. So we have Acts 1.8, okay? BGC, Boise Gospel, you are going to be Christ's witnesses in Boise. And when you go home, you're going to be Christ's witnesses in those places, on those streets, in those workplaces. Because, as we read in Acts 17, God has determined man's appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. In fact, he determined your times and the boundaries of where you live, and he also determined theirs, right? We're not just sent to a random people uh, that are unaware by some fluke, okay? God has orchestrated the events of your life and the events of your neighbor's life to bring them to this place where they now share a fence or a cubicle wall with someone who knows the gospel. That's what God is doing. That's why God made them live there. That's why God brought you to that house or to that community or to that neighborhood. Because he has arranged this meeting now where you are in actual proximity with people that need to know that Jesus was crucified for them. So proximity and presence, this idea, what does it look like in, in practice? First, while, while this idea of, of proximity and presence affects how we understand our mission to Boise in our own communities, I think actually to be grasped, to grasp and be transformed by the, by the real presence of Christ uh, for us and in us, it should affect the way we live life together as God's family. We're, we've been talking about these kinds of things, and I'm just going to beat them over the head a little bit more. Right? We can practice healthy, good proximity here in this family with each other. So very simply, be present. And don't just be in the room, but really be with each other. You don't have to be talkative or an extrovert. I understand that that's not easy for most. It's not easy for me most of the time. Okay, but you have to be around. Spend time in each other's homes. Bring others into your boundaries and into your homes. As much as you can, meet up face to face. Go for a walk. 
then for us and for our mission to Boise, that we want to be known and present in this community. We want to know our city. It means we need to know its boundaries, its, its cultural boundaries, its geographic boundaries, its strengths, its burdens, its sins, its idols, its people, ultimately. And we want, when we know those things, we want to be close to them. We want to ask God to give us a love for our, our city and our community. Rather than always complaining about something that's broken, because, surprise, something is always broken, we want to build strong relationships and partnerships with the people in our city and, 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 the, and city officials and, and ministries and churches and schools and anyone else would allow us to get closer to the needs of Boiseans. And for each of us and the people that God has sent us individually to, again, just be present, be visible. Go for walks in your neighborhood and I would encourage you actually to go on the same walks and do it often and have your eyes open to people who live there. Say hi, be seen, be known, learn their names. Try to remember their names. I'm getting better at this. I'm not that good at it. Learn their stories. How could you know the way in which God is pursuing somebody the way in which God has orchestrated their life to bring you to that point, if you don't know their story, you don't ask them, you understand where they're from, what they're about, what they've done with their life, what they care about, what they love. Invite them to church. And when you do it, I will always encourage you not to do it over social media. Do it over a plate of cookies. Somehow get in front of them and get to know them and ultimately pray for them. But here's the kicker, in the same way, that Jesus didn't stay in his throne in, in glory in heaven and lob his intercession across eternity to us in the same way that he was sent to be in real proximity to us. We shouldn't be content to sort of lob our prayers and intercession towards people across the street because you cannot help people who are far from God find the way back to God if you're far from them. So as you're praying for your neighbors, go to them. In fact, I would give you one hyper-practical thing you could try and take away from this. But go to somebody this week, somebody that might not know or, or maybe particularly care that you are a praying person, and just tell them that you want to pray for them. Ask them what you can be praying for. See what that does. See how that changes, not just changes them, but changes their understanding of you and the way that they approach you. How it fundamentally changes the way that you're able to relate to each other. But go to somebody maybe this week, and tell them you're praying for them, ask them how you can pray for them. That's what Jesus did for us. So we are, in fact, missionaries. We go to people, not because it's just a good strategy, but it's because it's the, the way that we most imitate Christ. It's what the, in, when you think about what Christmas is, it's the incarnation. It's when God, the eternal creator of the universe, came the eternal distance, the longest missionary journey ever, to enter into our life and to be really proximate and present with us. That's why you're compelled, that's why we're compelled to go to our neighbor, to be known and seen, and to enter in. That's why we are committed to Boise. Hopefully it's clear. I know we're spread out in a lot of places. Hopefully it's clear that we, as a church, as a corporate body, are committed to Boise. But so much as we are in Nampa or Star or Meridian or other places, um, we have a place there as well. And God's called us there to minister to those specific people.